0: as it relates to race. and uh, probably the greatest letter written from prison outside of the Bible, Martin Luther King lamented, I have heard so many ministers say, those are social issues which the gospel has no real concern. People wished King would just stick to the gospel. Did they have a point? Is a concern for social issues a distraction for the church? You know, the gospel's the good news. It's that a holy God has intervened into the world and redeemed his people in the death and resurrection of Jesus. It is a story of God's grace. It is a justice story. It is God putting the punishment on his son instead of us, and then us getting this new life and this power to live a new life. It has meant that the life that we could not live, we now can live, and so What is that life that we are supposed to live? We're God's image bearers. We've been given dominion and power over this creation. We're supposed to live in some way. And we know that even though Christ has come, this world is broken. You've maybe experienced it this week. And even though the Holy Spirit is at work, injustice is everywhere And we know there's a time coming when there will be no injustice. So between now, when we experience injustice, and then when there will be no injustice, what are we supposed to do? And why is it so hard for us in particular to talk about the issues of justice and race? Why is there so much suspicion and division, not just in our own culture, but in the church? There is a broken trust a trust that's not going to be rectified in a single sermon. I mean, maybe. It's hard because as a whole, we are impatient. We do not uh, tend to think through issues deeply. We have very thin beliefs. We are very impatient. I've I've said this before. H.L. Mencken once said, for every complex problem, there is an ample answer that is clear, simple, and wrong. It's hard because Satan hates us. He hates God's people. He hates all people. It's hard to be unified. We we fear we might break the church apart in talking about these issues. The issue of justice and racism is the only topic I have ever been told, not by the elders in this church, but by people, even people in this church, maybe you shouldn't talk about that. There is no other topic that I have ever talked on, that has ever elicited that response. Why? And you know, I have found globally as I've traveled that the global church as a whole does not really have the luxury of not talking about this, because the people they minister to face injustice every single day. They have to advocate. And I have found this personally hard, challenging because we all have cultural blinders, especially in our own culture. You go far away, you go to another culture, you're like, how come you don't see these things? But you live in your own culture and you just don't see it. And there are flamethrowers in our culture that don't want to bring peace and unity. They want to bring division and burn everything down. I found it difficult because our lived experiences are very different. And some people have experienced a lot of injustice and racism. Some people have experienced zero. Words like critical race theory and woke are new words. I don't even know what they mean anymore. People in conversation say things like, well, they've gone woke, and they've gone woke, and they've gone woke. And if you just ask the question, what does that mean? They don't even know. Maybe one of the fruits of racial injustice is the fact it's so hard to talk about. I was affected this week reading a book called uh, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth by Thaddeus Williams. And he writes this at the beginning. Conversations about important questions are reduced in our day to the only way someone could possibly disagree with me is if they are an evil person, a sworn enemy. And the result is self-righteousness, a loss of humble criticism, widespread confirmation bias, a loss of listening, a pervasive partisanship, a loss of real community that gives people the benefit of the doubt. I mean, I was, I'm talking to you as your friend. The, Paul tells the uh, minister, uh, the minister of the Lord is not to be quarrelsome. He's supposed to be kind to everyone. If the pastor, me, I'm going to talk about myself in third person. I know it's weird. If the pastor decides I can't address anything because I might uh, bring disunity to church, that person might be a coward. And yet, the pastor, I know that my views have shifted over time on this. And so what sermon are you going to get? you Are going to get Darren five years from now or Darren five years ago? And at the same time, if I remain broad, no one's going to be unmoved. And so here we are, the community of the redeemed, salt and light in the world. And rather than avoiding it, we are going to go right into it with humility. The history of the church hasn't been great. The history of the U.S. hasn't been great. You know, after the Civil War ended, it wasn't like magic wand, racism is gone. Immediately, the Southern church enacted black codes, weaponizing criminal, uh, criminalizing pretty much injustice against black people and ending up trumping up charges against them to give them back to their owners, former owners. People get trapped Without due process, okay, that becomes illegal. Here comes Jim Crow, okay. Now blacks are excluded from juries, and we could keep going. I mean, in the in the United States from 1877 to 1950, there was a lynching every single week in our country. Photographers would capture the events and sell postcards. In our own state, 1909, it was illegal for. Someone who is white to marry an African American, someone who's Chinese, someone who's Japanese. In 1942, the Montana Supreme Court upheld that. If if you are over 81 years old and you lived in Montana, you were here for that. It was repealed in 1953. Do do you think that these issues just stopped then? Like, well, we passed a law 50, 60, 70 years ago. It's over, and yet. The Bible seems to have this concept of sin being generational. Numbers fourteen: the Lord is a long, suffer- the Lord God is long-suffering and great in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon their children, third and fourth generation. Do you think there's any carryover? Is there zero carryover? Is it all gone? And it's not just our own country. It, it's, a, it's around the world. Take slavery. There were a million Europeans enslaved in North Africa between 1500 and 1800. The Europeans who were enslaved were Christians, and they were enslaved by Muslims. Arabs were the leading slave traders of East Africa. The total number of slaves exported in the 19th century was 2 million and just to make show you how challenging that issue is, at the height of the Atlantic slave trade, Africans kept more slaves than sent to the West. There's a sickness of injustice. And so we're gonna do this topically and going through the Bible, and then I'm going to give super specific examples that I'm pretty sure is gonna make everyone uncomfortable. I love it. Let's go. <laughs> I told my daughter, I wonder how many emails I'm going to get. Okay, we're friends. You can send me stuff. Point one, justice and not personal piety is the litmus test of knowing God. Justice and not personal piety. Let's go to Isaiah 58, which Eli read. Maybe I'll just ask you this. Should the Christian ethic be regulated to your own personal piety? Here's Isaiah 58. Isaiah is dressing God's people. They have, they, and, and you just gotta feel the shock of Isaiah's words here. Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, speaking to people in exile. Look at verse two of Isaiah 58, God speaking. Day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. Seeking in the Old Testament means worship. It's personal piety. It's they're going to the temple and they're offering sacrifice. The parallel to Isaiah today would be these are people who pray, have their quiet times. They show up at church when it's minus 23 outside. They are diligent, it is sustained, it is day by day. There is a discipline here worth imitating. Leave it up on the screen. And then, verse three. So they have their personal piety, God's not answering their prayers bad things are happening. They seem eager. You know that word, seem eager, is actually passionate? Think about that. They're seeking, and they're passionate about it. This is the kind of person that rallies people in church. They're eager. They're passionate. They they practice spiritual disciplines. And in verse 3, God is not answering their prayers, and so They're wondering, why? Why why have you not answered? We fasted. We've done things. We're we're doing doing the stuff that you've said to do. And God's response to them is wild. Verse six, is not this the kind of fast I've chosen for you? So they're fasting. To choose the chain, loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, set the oppressed free, break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? God is making an argument to them. I just feel the weight of this argument. If you are just focused on personal piety, God says, you don't know me. If you don't love them, and Isaiah, the them, are the orphan, the poor, the widow, the wanderer, and your own family, God says, if you don't love them, you don't love me. Your personal, you love, Isaiah says, your personal obedience, you don't love me. Now, I just step back from that. If you've grown up in church, you learn things like the fruit of the spirit, right? Kids, you learn the song, the fruit of the spirit is not a coconut. The fruit of the spirit is not a coconut. If you wanna be a coconut, you might as well hear it. You can't be a fruit of the spirit because the fruit is Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. A little bit slower than that. And so you're you're trying to decide, okay, is this person following Christ or not? Well, are they exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit? And then you go, okay, I'm going to teach them spiritual disciplines. Are you praying and are you reading Scripture? How's your purity? Are you fighting sin and doing all, all the stuff? And that's how you mark it. Well, Isaiah 58 is like, here's a word from our sponsor on that way of discipling. It's an interruption of all the passion and all the excitement, all the joy and all the piety. And Isaiah says, piety is not the test. People who have discipled uh, younger Christians in this room, let me ask you something. In your 10 weeks of this is the Christian life, have you in that 10 weeks ever said, now what do you think about justice issues? Have you put that into basic Christianity? because Isaiah says it's at the heart. Isaiah one is similar. Isaiah one says this, verse 15. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing wrong. Now here's the solution. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Think about that. God is saying, cancel your prayer meetings. I'm not listening. When Isaiah talks about a great light dawning, which we quote in the New Testament, and we say, oh, this is Jesus. They're walking in darkness. Well, what is the darkness in Isaiah? It's, it's a number of things, but let me just share two. And it's the first two that are mentioned in Isaiah. The first one is syncretism. That is, they are worshiping other gods. Isaiah 2, they are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination of the, Phil- of the Philistines, embrace pagan customs. So they're worshiping false gods. That's the darkness. But there is another darkness, Isaiah five eight, Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left, and you alone live in the land. That is The poor have nowhere to live because the rich are buying up all the land for themselves. And God calls it spiritual darkness. Now, if you are like me and grew up in in church, I'm guessing your church embraced one or two of those primarily. What is the cause of the darkness? Well, the darkness is that we're worshiping false gods put the exclamation on that. Or another church goes, well, it's actually the economic injustice. People aren't being paid fair wages and people can't get their houses. That's the darkness. And Isaiah doesn't let you fall into those two categories. He lists all of them as the darkness. And so what are you supposed to do? Now, I've seen what repentance looks like in Isaiah 58. I'll give you two examples. They're both from Greek churches It's okay. I had a friend who was a pastor at a a Greek church across the street from an airport that had become a refugee camp. And uh, Muslim refugees started showing up at their church, started doing Bible study church. And one Bible study in particular was the Wednesday night Bible study. And the pastor said, these are the very conservative people who never miss church. Of course, they're there Wednesday nights. It's prayer meeting. They're going to be there. And about four or five months in, this Muslim who had been coming said, can I speak? And they had not liked him and they'd kind of pushed him to the side. And he said these words, I've been here for a few months. I've heard about Christ. I see your love. And I feel like right now, it's time for me to ask your permission if I can come into this church and be a Christian. I want to be part of your community. So here's the prayer meeting that they're having when they've been stiff arming these Muslims who live across the street all of a sudden, here comes one to Christ and all the men start crying. They start crying because they know in their heart they've hated him. And now he is joining their church and he is being embraced. Another Greek pastor, he came to the U.S. to preach. And in the middle of the sermon, he asked the congregation, hey, what's that big building for next to your church? He says, well, that's the new worship center. And then he just said as a side comment, I wonder how many homeless people there are in this city. Maybe you could have a kitchen or food shelf in there or something. And then he continued, he threw it away, he never thought about it. Two years later, he comes back and the pastor says to him, hey, when you were here last, you remember how you mentioned uh, what we should do at the building. And he was like, I don't remember. But then he told him and he said, well, after that service, we said, okay, let's go out that night and see how many homeless there are. There were 310 homeless people. And he said, what we did the next day is we went to city hall. We changed the entire plans for that building. And guess what? This week we are baptizing the first Christian of the 310 homeless people that now stay in that building because of that throwaway statement you made. There's the repentance. Small steps expressing an ethic of what? Love, love. Now, part two, nailing down what justice is. What is it? The Dutch theologian Herman Bavinck, some of you may have read his stuff, points out that justice has two parts. Retribution is part one. We, we all recognize that, right? Like what is God's justice? God's justice is uh, that person needs to pay for what they've done. Retribution. And you know what? The, just in the United States, we are an exceedingly poor at keeping people accountable for what they've done. 97% of burglars, 88% of rapists, 50% of murderers get away with their crimes in the US. That is injustice. That is a lack of justice for the people who are affected by crime but there is also reparative justice. And Vink talks about this as the primary thrust of the Bible is not the retribution side, but the reparative side, the kind that brings healing. Biblical justice is about first equality. Leviticus 19, do not pervert justice, do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. Judge your neighbor fairly. Remember, love your neighbor as yourself. Quote it all the time. Here's the echo of it Deuteronomy 16, 19. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a, bli- a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the innocent. The Israelites are told don't steal, don't testify falsely, don't withhold wages from workers, don't do injustice in courts. Don't slander people, but instead love your neighbor as yourself. And and guess what? That ethic is completely distinct from any other culture when this is being written. Aristotle, you know, Greek philosopher, actually thought that some races deserved to be slaves. Apart from Israel, there was no ethic that had the poor as having any intrinsic value. So you go to any other region of the world... You go to any other religion of the world and the intrinsic value and worth of a person is only found in one religion. That was the Israelite religion and then Christianity. So it's about equality. It's also about equal treatment, Leviticus twenty-four twenty-three: You shall have the same rules for the sojourners as for the natives, for I am the Lord your God. So, in the middle of the Old Testament law here you have this ethnically distinct per people this religiously distinct people and in the middle of it the law is don't treat anyone differently than you don't apply the law differently to anyone as you apply it to yourself that includes people who are not even citizens migrants and it's not just fair laws it's fair punishments so it's Equal treatment, biblical justice, equal treatment, equality across, and that also includes the punishment for people. 1982 has found Georgia that black defendants received the death penalty 22% of the time when it was a white victim and only 1% of the time when it was a black victim. See the injustice there? White victims get justice, death penalty, if you if you. Do you think scripture teaches that? And the black victim gets none 1%. 2015, two bicyclers going to a fraternity party, see a man assaulting an unconscious woman. Turned out to be a 19 year old all American swimmer from Stanford. He's convicted of felony sexual assault and given probation from the judge with six months in jail. That's injustice. And the judge got recalled in California because of it. Let me just give you a command from Scripture. Here, here's, here's a, remember, equality, but biblical justice, equality across, equal treatment, equal punishment. One of the commands is do not murder, right? And if you come from a Presbyterian background, you, you may have read the Westminster Catechism, it's essentially the Bible of the Presbyterians and they treat it like the Bible, Uh, it does not change. And they say, you shall not kill. And it teaches this, that that also includes neglecting or withdrawing the necessary means of the preservation of life. In other words, it's not just about deliberately murdering someone. It's about fighting for the conditions so people can actually live. So when you say, African American babies die at twice the rate of white babies. African American mothers die four times more likely in giving birth than white mothers. Young African uh, male American males are six times more likely to be murdered. Okay, what does then "you shall not murder" mean if you are trying to have equal laws across? How are you going to then advocate as a Christian? Because these are people. These aren't just statistics. Quality, equal treatment, and a special concern for people of vulnerable uh, and vulnerable populations. Here's Proverbs. Speak up for those who can't speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights and the poor of the needy. Scripture doesn't say speak up for stable families. Speak up for people who have money. Speak up for people who are successful. There is a special focus on people who are outside the cultural power brokers. That's the heart of God. So here's real examples. Children in poor neighborhoods, typically people of color, do not grow up with good education opportunities. And so you're a, a Christian and you know, you, you know in your heart, okay, there's a lot of reasons for that, but no one says, well, that's the kid's fault. We should blame them. And so you're a Christian and you are like, how do I advocate for this to help these children? And you know what some Christians have done? They've started classical Christian schools in inner cities where education is failing them and raised up the money to make it free for all of these kids to come into the school. And you know what's happened? It's rescued these families out of poverty. Do you want to speak up? You want to advocate? Do you want brothers and sisters in Christ who are pleading with you to see the injustice? Do you want to bear the mark of someone who knows God? Well, biblical justice means opening your mouth. And what is the recipe for all of that? It's love. That's the call of the Old Testament. Love your neighbor. You know, Christians get all titled, well, who is my neighbor? Well, who is my neighbor? Well, who is my neighbor? Jesus has some pretty strong words for you in the New Testament if you try to break that down. Impartial laws lead to love. And Paul will say in Romans, let no debt be outstanding except love. That is not passive. That's not just standing back. I mean, like, well, we'll just see what happens. It's active. So biblical justice is equality and access. Now let me step on people's toes. Biblical justice does not teach that all disparity is unjust. And this is where we bump up against our own culture. A well-known writer says this, when I see disparity, I see racism but the Bible doesn't teach that. There are disparities everywhere. Do you know the median net worth of conservative Protestants is 26,000 compared to Jews, which is $150,000? Do we need to then uh, have a march against the anti-conservative Protestant movement that entraps us in net worth that is five times lower than Jews? Do we need to march against them? Asians are underrepresented in the NBA, in the NHL, yet they're way overrepresented in Ivy League schools. Do we need to, which, which one do we need to march against? We need more to be in the NBA. Do we need less to be in Ivy League schools? Jewish students make up 1% of the population. They make up 23% of Ivy League schools. Is that unjust? Women over overrepresented in healthcare, men over, overrepresented in soldiers, Are these things that things that need be corrected? Is that racism? Is that sexism? What does our culture say right now? Yes. What does the Bible say? No. Let me give you narratives, and let's apply scripture to some narratives in our culture. And these are super specific. And I want to show you super specific examples to make you, one, uncomfortable, and two, to show you how it leads to injustice if you get it wrong. Example one. On the New Jersey Turnpike, black drivers receive twice as many speeding tickets as white drivers. Is that racial profiling? Is that terrible police work? Well, one research institute looked at the data a little more deeply, and they added one factor, age. Because the black population is significantly younger than the white population in this area. And guess what? Maybe you didn't know this, but younger drivers tend to drive faster than (laughs) older drivers. And so, when you take age into account, guess what? The numbers even out. But, so you can sit back and unjust twice as much, racial profiling. And you know what you do? In doing that, you actually take cases that are really unjust and you put them into this category and then you ruin it for everyone when they're trying to advocate for real injustice. Data matters. Example two. In 2000, see how specific they are? But this is life, right? This is, this is how people talk about it. In 2000, mortgage lenders, two times more likely to reject blacks than whites. Sounds terrible, right? Racial profiling, right? The banks are terrible. We need to pass laws to force the banks to even that out, right? But then the Commission on Civil Rights found that white Americans are turned down twice as much as Asian Americans And native Hawaiians, oh no, now what do we do? And black-owned banks turn down black loan seekers twice as often as white-owned banks. Now what do we do? You see how challenging that gets? So you, you say, okay, I'm a Christian. I need to do equality. I need to have the same laws across the board. And therefore that means I need to pass unjust laws they are gonna punish people to even these numbers out. It's not that simple and you actually create injustice. Example three, the police, you thought I wouldn't do it, but this is the cultural hotspot. If we're not gonna talk about in the church, where are we gonna talk about it? You're gonna be discipled by the TV. I have been with brothers and sisters in Christ who are afraid of the police, people of color, who put baby carriers in the back of their cars because they think it will calm things down. They have experienced things that I have not experienced. A Pack poll says 74% of people who are black have a personal worry of being a victim of police brutality. Three out of four. Why is that? Is this not exhibit A? And yet Columbia University professor says, we operate under this meme that the cops casually kill black males and slap white boys on the wrist. And the perception versus reality is alarming. Just think about this. When an unarmed black man is killed, the news mentions his name at night 80 times a day. If a Hispanic man is unarmed, is killed, they mention him less than one time a day. If a white man is killed, it's four times a day, unarmed. What does that tell you? It tells you that the media shapes the message so that when you are trying to think through the issue of biblical justice, you are being fed a narrative that leads to 75% of people who are African American thinking the police are going to beat them up. 33% of people think a thousand unarmed black men are killed by a police every year. Do you know what the number is? 29 80% of people who are African-American think a young black man is more likely to be killed by police than than killed in a car accident. Where is that coming from? History? Sure. The media? Sure. The church? Sometimes. Reality? No. At Harvard, no conservative place. One man, one professor who happens to be black said there's actually no evidence of racial police bias in police shooting in Houston. Blacks were 24% less likely to be shot by whites than police. Washington State study, police officers are less likely to be shot, shoot black suspects than white suspects. Why does this matter? Let me tell you why this matters for biblical justice. Because you know what happened because of this narrative? Police the police have pulled out of some of these neighborhoods. And you know what's happened as a result? Injustice for the people who live in these neighborhoods because they have no protection. Do people in power take advantage of people who have none? Yes. Why do you think the Bible's written? Does that include the police? Yes. Does that include lawyers? Yes. Judges, yes. Juries, yes. And Christians should be quick to point that out. But I just give these examples to say sometimes our vision for biblical justice actually creates injustice for other people. Let's keep going. Everyone, take a breath. Biblical justice takes into account life choices. There's a few passages. He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. That's Proverbs 10. All hard work brings profit, but mere talk leads to poverty, Proverbs 14. Sluggards do not plow in season, so the harvest time they look but find nothing. For even, this is Paul, when we were with you, we gave this rule, the one who is unwilling to work will not eat. If you were gonna be someone who pursues biblical justice, especially since it's touched the race, you need to repent of simplistic definitions of poverty. Poverty is rooted in broken relationships. One person wrote in Walking with the Poor, poverty is the result of relationships that don't work, are not just, are not for life, are not enjoyable. Let me just give you examples just show you how, and I'll do it outside of our country, just show you how hard it is. My, my friend was in Uganda. He, they wanted to build a school for the kids. They built the school for the kids. And then none of the kids were at school. He couldn't find out why. Why were they not at school? We're trying to Bring up the education levels that help these kids. We're sharing the gospel with them. We're building them a school. Well, the local cobbler was having problems. And so he went to the witch doctor. And the witch doctor says, Your, great, your grandmother is mad at you. You need to get the heads of 40 kids and sacrifice them. No school. What's the problem? It's not throw money at it. What is it? Animism. It's not so simple. Another other missionaries in Latin America, the kids are destitute, poor, starving. And there's mounds of corn everywhere being eaten by rats. And he asked the people, are, are you or the rats in charge? And so they built silos and they stored the food. And the kids became nourished and they went back to school. And guess what happened? Poverty went down. How about even in our own country? One man who's the CEO of black charter schools in New York City said, has said in, in one study he has seen, any African American in their schools who finish their education, get a full-time job, get married and have children in that order almost always escape poverty. Only 6% leave poverty, or remain in poverty. The Brookings Institute said 98% of Americans who finish high school get a job, any job, and wait until marriage to have children will not be poor. So Christian, you wanna do justice? You wanna do biblical justice, equality, special concern for the poor, advocacy, opening your mouth? How about asking for laws that push people into marriage and push people into having kids after marriage? How about financial motivation? and not passing laws that reshape marriage in your country like we're doing, but having laws that support a man and woman being married and then having children. Do you know what you would do? You would help so many people escape poverty if you just did that. Laws are a way of teaching ethics. They shape how people think. Here's a silly example. I watched a a recording of a newscast from Montana when it became illegal to openly drink while driving. Some of you uh, were in high school when that happened, and you remember the uproar, and the interviews are hilarious. Government overreach, ruining our way of life, I need two drinks before I get home to relax. I drink them in the car. We think that's crazy now, right, why? Because laws have taught us something, they've shaped our ethics. So. For MLK Weekend, one, a life of justice is knowing God. Let's embrace the fact that God's litmus test is not necessarily just the fruit of the Spirit, not necessarily spiritual disciplines alone, but justice. This isn't a talk to say, you know what? That's not injustice, and that's not injustice, and that's not... There is injustice in the world. And the litmus test for the Christian is to say, that's unjust, that's unjust. Open my mouth. Laws across that are equal and fair to everyone. Two, let's embrace biblical justice, equality, and advocacy. In doing so, when you hear narratives that take simplistic data, ask yourself the question, what are they trying to do? Three, we can advocate for laws that are just. My guess is that. All of us will disagree in the details of that. That's fine, but we can be motivated by love. We can follow Paul. Let no debt remain outstanding except the debt of love for one another. And last, in this process, we can be unified. Let's be honest. Your position changes over time on this. My positions change over time on this. As we circle kind of the tube down to what does God think about these things? We don't know them when we first become a Christian. And so we protect the unity of the church by saying Christ died, Christ rose from the dead, Christ offers forgiveness and says, and we unify around that. And then from that, we now work out the just life with one another, not demeaning one another and calling each other evil for having different positions, but because Christ has redeemed us. That's the unity that comes with being a Christian. Let's pray. Lord, our culture on justice issues is condemning and pulls us apart. And in the gospel, we can be brought together and unified. Help us not to parrot the words of the world, help us not to demean. To call people evil just because they disagree. Help us be unified around the gospel. Help us to see injustice before we experience it ourselves and go, oh, it has been happening. Lord, for many people, it's not theoretical. People in this room have experienced injustice, some because of their ethnicity. And so we pray that that, that would be an end. There'd be an end to that and that. There would be just laws in our country, even as simple as protecting marriage for the sake of lifting people up and out of deep, dark poverty. In Jesus' name, amen.